Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and Christine is away this week. In today's episode, we'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, we've decided to do something a little bit different this week and focus our entire news segments on doing a deep dive into the online Harms Act that was tabled in the legislature this week. Um, This is a file that obviously we've been watching for a long time. This is the latest iteration. It was previously um, proposed and died on the order paper in 2021. Um, And free expression is uh, probably the most important issue that we work on. So we have a lot to say about this bill, and there's a lot in this bill. So Josh, obviously, we have a lot to unpack. Why don't we begin? Why don't you take us through a little bit of background for those who haven't been keeping track of the various internet and media regulation bills that the federal government has introduced? Um, And then we'll get into the nitty gritty details of this really quite uh, disturbing for people who are proponents of free expression like ourselves, uh, Bill. Yeah, so I'll give that background as quickly as I can, just to so people know what we're talking about. So this is Bill C-63, which is a beefed up version of the Online Harms Act that was called Bill C-36, which is the one that died on the order paper, as you mentioned. And this is one of three big internet regulation bills that we've been worried about from a free speech perspective. The first one passed last April, and that was the Online Streaming Act, which puts services like Netflix, Spotify, YouTube under CRTC control. And the goal is to make them play certain kinds of content, uh, you know, not just CanCon, but also things like indigenous content. And this is a free speech concern, at least to me, because it means the government is now deciding what people are allowed to watch or listen to on Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, that sort of thing. So that's already law. And the second the second bill was the Online News Act, and this received royal assent last June. This is the one that caused, uh, it caused news to disappear from your Facebook and your Instagram feed because it requires big online services to let, to pay, uh, when people post links to news stories, uh, you know, pay the CBC or the Toronto Star or whatever for the privilege of those links having been posted. And, uh, you know, this was obviously a bill that backfired in a big way since only Google was really willing to play ball. And it was a free expression concern, not just because it meant government was licensing news, you know, deciding who counts as a journalist that should get money from Google or Facebook, but also, you know, because it caused news to disappear. And so this third bill, this is the one that was tabled this week. And it's the one that we probably had the biggest concerns about because it has the potential to outlaw and chill a really wide range of, of speech. And we weren't really sure if the liberals were serious about going this far. We talked about it on the podcast last week about what might or might not be in it. Uh, I, I had sort of thought that it was a pre-election tactic from the last election and that they wouldn't bring back uh, such extreme um, restrictions on on free speech, but I, I was wrong. So uh, Christine, who's away this week, uh, she won that one because she was, she was pretty sure it would be as bad as it turned out to be. Uh, the bill does a bunch of things. So it creates a new digital safety commission, which is like a whole new extra CRTC 
that will exist to browbeat social media companies into removing what the what the bill defines as harmful content. We'll get into what that means. And it creates a new criminal code hate crime offense that has a life sentence and applies to basically every act. Um, it's extremely broad. It ups the penalties for hate crimes. It allows judges to impose peace bonds on people who might commit hate speech crimes in the future. It requires immediate takedown of images that sexually victimize children. And most importantly, the biggest deal, the biggest part of it is it empowers the Canadian Human Rights Commission to fine people for discriminatory speech. So tons to unpack here, lots of different parts. Uh, Joanna, why don't we start off with uh, what I see as the scariest part of this bill, which is giving the Human Rights Commission the mandate to police online speech again. Yeah, so in our uh, group chat about this, I described this off the cock. I didn't think it was very funny, but this is just the analogy that came to mind that it was like it was like like a muffin that didn't turn out well and you had it sort of socked in the back of your freezer and the government has decided to go back to the back of the freezer to that muffin that's been there for over 10 years and everybody agreed was bad to begin with and just toss it out and serve it up again because I guess the basic infrastructure or the basic idea or the bureaucracy, most likely the bureaucracy was uh, aware of this possible thing. It's like, you want to get tougher on online speech? Let's bring back Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Um, so this is a civil remedy for so-called instances of online hate speech. And of course, um, it, this was widely criticized for reasons that we'll get into, um, under the Harper government, and it was ultimately repealed by a private member's bill about 10 years ago. But anyways, it's back. So by it, I mean a new process for individuals and groups to bring complaints to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, um, that online speech directed by them, or even actually just online speech that they witness, um, is discriminatory. This tribunal is empowered with the ability to order fines up to $50,000 that just gets paid into the Receiver General of Canada. Thank you very much. Um, and then $20,000, lesser amount, but still generous um, for, for complainants um, who in some cases could be anonymous. So this means you could have a complaint brought against you that you were doing an online uh, hate speech act and not even know who had brought the complaint. Um, and then of course, because we're talking about a civil process, as opposed to a criminal process, the findings would be based on the much less stringent balance of probability standard rather than the more rigorous criminal standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, um, which basically means that the threshold um, for these kind of complaints has been lowered and we could expect that there will be many more people accused of and facing these types of complaints in the future. Um, and to accommodate that, you do see a provision that the Can Canadian Human Rights Tribunal is now set to bloat out to up to 20 members um, to hear these complaints. And of course, these are all government appointed bureaucrats that are going to be deciding on this and deciding whether or not to impose these stiff fines. Uh, and so as I mentioned at the top, this was the law until 2013. Um, when it was repealed by a private member's bill under the Harper government um, because it was widely seen um, as a scourge and a huge problem for free expression. And so, of course, the world was a little different uh, at this time. So the sort of uh, 
most prominent case of a complaint of this sort was in 2006. So McLean's magazine, remember, this used that used to be an important like thinking person's magazine in Canada. Didn't you work for McLean's, Josh? Yeah, I did. I did. It was after this this period, but it was uh yeah, it was a big deal back then. Like, you know, our Yeah. everybody paid attention Yeah. to our cover stories. We had a huge subscribership. And Yeah. uh, yeah, it's a different time. Now they just write about, you know, fancy cottages. And I think they have about three staff. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. It used to be like the Atlantic of Canada. And uh, anyways, so they published a cover story bar by Mark Stein, the uh, famous pugilist entitled The Future Belongs to Islam. And the theory of this piece by Stein was that liberal democracies with low birth rates and weak national identities um, would be overwhelmed by the much more fast growing Muslim demographic um, that was more oriented towards Sharia law and theocratic rule than democracy. Um, around the same time, Ezra Levant, another S disturber, um, published uh, controversial cartoons depicting Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and so human rights complaints alleging discrimination were brought, including a Section 13.1 complaint against Stein. Um, these were dismissed. Um, but the notion that the state could just haul journalists before tribunals for controversial speech um, where they faced these extremely punitive fines um, was widely condemned. Even the Toronto Star was opposed. And so this is kind of the nub of the issue is where do we draw the line between controversial, edgy, uncomfortable ideas and so-called hate speech? Um, Josh, you're going to write about this, I think, in the next week. Um, and you have a great tweet storm about this is that there is no clear objective line. Like we do this for a living and we couldn't tell you like there's no objective formula. Um, there's no way that you can sort of put your finger on when the line is crossed. And because of that, that creates this huge specter, this chill effect um, that huge amounts of protected speech that maybe is uncomfortable or controversial, um, but has, you know, the notion is it has some worth in the public marketplace of ideas, because how we sharpen our tools and figure out what we believe in um, is by being exposed to all kinds of ideas that uh, we don't agree with. So uh, this came before the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, the constitutionality of this Section 13 civil remedy for hate speech uh, in the case of uh, Taylor. Um, Josh, I don't know if you want to jump in and talk about this Supreme Court case and how uh, and the background about it and how useful or not useful it is and actually uh, pinning down what hate speech is. Yeah, so Taylor is a it's a fascinating case. So Taylor, um, he contravened a provision that was like Section 13, and he did it by distributing cards that invited people to call a number where they would hear recorded messages that denigrated Jews. And, you know, I guess this was how you had to do it back before the internet. You couldn't just like tweet out neo-Nazi things. You had to actually like spread cards throughout the community that people would call and then, you know, hear uh, I don't know, whatever conspiracy theory. So anyway, the tribunal ordered that he stop and he didn't comply. So a court fined him $5,000 and ordered a one year prison sentence, which was suspended on the condition that he comply. And he still didn't stop. So he was imprisoned. And the whole time this is working its way through the courts, it's being covered in the media and he's getting all of this attention that he wouldn't otherwise have got. But 
Anyway, he took it all the way to the Supreme Court and he lost. And the whole debate at the Supreme Court really was about this subjectivity question about can you define what is hate that's so extreme that it's going to cause harm uh, worthy of limiting in a free and democratic society, which are the only limits that are, are allowed on expression under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And Chief Justice Dixon won this argument and he basically said, you know, the phrase hatred or contempt refers only to, quote, unusually strong and deep felt emotions of detestation, calumny and vilification. And so he saw little danger that subjective opinion as to offensiveness will supplant the proper meaning of the section. And Justice Beverly McLaughlin, who went on to become the chief justice, she made um, she made the argument that we at the, the CCF make, which is that you know, you you can't really draw a line, and uh, and you're going to chill a huge amount of speech by even just trying to draw a line. So um, we should just allow people to say what they want to say and uh, not you know criminalize that or or uh, bring people to human rights tribunals. So I like this quote. She wrote. Novelists may steer clear of controversial characterizations of ethnic characteristics. Scientists may well think twice before researching and publishing results of research. Given the serious consequences of criminal prosecution, it is not entirely speculative to suppose that even political debate on crucial issues such as immigration, education, educational language rights, foreign ownership and trade may be tempered. These matters go to the heart of the traditional justifications for freedom of expression. And that's the point here. Like we need to be able to talk about the most controversial things without fear of, of censorship and uh, something like section 13 or criminal hate speech provisions don't allow us to do that. And so this came up again in the Watcott case, which the CCF intervened in. And this was an appeal of a Saskatchewan human rights uh, commission uh, provision involving a Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission provision similar to Section 13, which was used to punish this Christian man uh, named Bill Watcott, who had been handing out pamphlets that said, keep homosexuality out of Saskat Saskatoon's public schools and had all kinds of nasty things in there about gay people. And here at the Supreme Court, uh, with Justice Rothstein writing the opinion, um, revisited this question of the subjectivity and he he sort of uh, reined it in and said, you know, Dixon was wrong. You can't include calumny. That doesn't count as hate speech. But he, he said the most extreme manifestations of the emotion captured by the words detestation and vilification can, can be outlawed as hate speech. And he said this doesn't include speech that, while repugnant and offensive, does not incite the level of abhorrence, delegitimization, and rejection that risks causing discrimination or other harmful effects. He also found that certain types of speech, like offensive speech or speech that merely ridicules, that's fine, that's not hateful. But again, you read that definition. I've read that definition a bunch of times. I'm sure you have too, Joanna. And try to parse out, okay, well, what is speech that ridicules versus speech that vilifies? You know, ridicules is apparently fine and legal and protected, but vilifies is is not. And it's just really impossible to know where the line is. And so what's even more worrisome is uh, some of the are some of the examples of what Justice Rothstein 
told us in what caught to look for in order to know where that line is and whether speech falls over that line into something that is is hate speech. He said, you need to look for the quote, hallmarks of hatred. And uh, these are, you know, in indicators of possible hate speech. But the problem with these is they include a lot of things that are, again, quite subjective and things that we should probably be allowed to say. And I'll just go through some of the examples. So these were, were um, this is the tweet storm that you referred to, Joanna. So one hallmark of hatred is blaming a group's members for the current problems in society, alleging that they're a powerful menace. So, you know, the first familiar. <laughs> the first thing that jumps to mind is like, you know, all of the EDI training that I've had over and over again at university and in various jobs over the past few years, where you base the argument is basically that um, white people and also white men in particular have all of the power and that a lot of the problems in society, especially with inequality, are the problems of, you know, white men being too dominant and and uh, trying to hold on to power for themselves. And, you know, I don't like that. I don't like that particular argument. Um, I mean, but there is you're a powerful menace, Josh. I know. Well, I, I guess I am now. The menace of Leslieville. <laughs> But anyway, like, you know, that's that's I, I don't think most people would see that as hate speech, but it, it's apparently a hallmark of hatred. Another one is, you know, this idea of, of a group carrying out secret conspiracies to gain global control. Joanna, I think you hear that one as a this, this is me. This is, <laughs> this is directed at me and my people. Yeah, I uh, I just this week I, I wrote about it in the hub. There was somebody on Twitter that was calling me a Caucasoidic Jew running a Jew charity, um, which I guess I, I am a silver Jew. I do have blonde hair, but no, the CCF has no affiliation with any religion. Um, but yes, that is, you know, lock, stock and barrel, the classic narrative about Jewish people. Um, but we've talked about before, and the same with even Holocaust deniers, when you criminalize these things, first of all, you give them a weird type of purchase amongst the nitwits that are inclined to believe this stuff in the first place, um, by driving it underground. Um, and you give these people a platform like Ernst Zundel, where, you know, you had Holocaust survivors on the stand being cross-examined, uh, by Zundel's defense counsel. So it just gives them more of a platform and in a sense legitimizes crackpot theories. Um, there should be no problem in society with saying that people that peddle this stuff um, should, you know, be delegit delegitimized. You don't have to frequent their businesses. You don't have to hire them. But when we're talking about criminal law, we really want something that is uh, objective, clear, clearly defined, um, and that has identifiable harms, not just this amorphous um, which I think is really driving a lot of the overall impulse, getting back to this online harms bill. Um, it's a lot of virtue signaling. It's a lot of symbolic politics of saying, we strongly denounce people doing hate things. Um, but when you look at the, you know, the spill on effect, or as we like to talk about the chill effect, um, it has a much wider catchment. Yeah, I totally agree. So I just want to go through a few more of these they're just because just they're kind of fun. So one of them, another hallmark of hatred is plotting to destroy Western civilization. And, you know, this gets thrown around a lot against various groups. But can you not 
you know, imagine a scenario where there is like some some country out there, like some foreign country that really does want to destroy Western civilization. And if that comes up, should we not be allowed to to say that? Um, yeah, I mean, you should read Hamas's charter. It's pretty clear that's what they want to do. <laughs> right. Um, another one is delegitimizing the targeted group by suggesting its members are illegal or unlawful. And, you know, are we going to see complaints based on, uh, you know, the no one is illegal type argument, right? Like we, we have certain groups in Canada right now, like this was a news story in like all of the major newspapers. Um, there, there's been a huge uptick in Mexican nationals that are like falsely claiming asylum. And there's a conversation about whether Canada should impose visas to prevent that. But you know, if I suggest that this group is illegal or unlawful, um, am I going to face a human rights complaint? I mean, the, probably. And yeah, maybe it'll be tossed out, but I would have to defend that. I would have to spend time and money doing that. And um, well, I wouldn't hire a lawyer, lawyer, but a lot of people would have to hire a lawyer to just defend that. And, and you know, another one here that jumps out is exposure to hatred can result from expression that equates a targeted group with groups traditionally reviled in society, such as child abusers or pedophiles. And there's a lot of people out there right now that use the, the G word, uh, groomers. And, you know, I find that can be quite offensive because it's sort of equating people that um, believe in gender transition with people that are, are pedophiles. But the word groomers also means a lot of different things to different people. And then the last one is describing a group's members as animals or as subhuman or horrible creatures who ought not be allowed to live incognizant primates genetically inferior or lesser beasts and you know i was thinking about this hamas is a great example like they i'm pretty sure they want to kill me and all the other gays so i can't call them animals or lesser beasts or something like that like come on um this is the problem, though. Uh, Joanna, you had an example, too, of of uh, TERFs. Um... Yeah, well, this just goes to, and I was thinking about this because a friend got really offended by something that, um, that Christine said at one of our book events where she was talking about um, how abhorrent it was that uh, pro-Palestinian protesters were targeting a Jewish neighborhood. And this friend of mine was really offended. And it just brought back to me how a lot of the context of how inflammatory a comment will be kind of relies on your in-group or your out-group, like your affiliation. And TERFs is a good example of this. So TERFs, uh, and I actually, I remember about five years ago, I was at a Running Needs Society event with John Kay, and I hadn't heard this term. And he was like, oh, that's good. It means you're not on Twitter a lot. But this was like early TERF days. So it means trans-exclusionary radical feminists. So these tend to be the you know, women are women and trans women are trans women, not biological women. Um, so in certain groups, like the Quillette John, John K circles, being called a turf is like a badge of honor. Um, like, yes, I stand up for, you know, natural biological women's rights to, you know, compete in sports with without biological, um, uh, sorry, trans women who have different testosterone capacities. Um, but in other circles, like, you know, just as J.K. Rowling, 
um, that is a direct incitement and vilification and, and dog whistle for certain types of online mobs to come after you. Um, you can listen to the witch trials of J.K. Rowling to hear exactly just how that can go. Um, so all of this I just point to, and I, I don't have a... I don't have a stake in the ground on either side of this particular debate, um, but it really just shows how the schisms um, really can determine how context determines the particular valence of, of calling someone something. So there's not just like an objective way of, of singling out when speech crosses the threshold of inspiring intense vilification or detestation. Um, and then the concern, because all of this is being implemented by the government um, is that it will be what the government agrees with and what the government finds hateful. Uh, and that's not the government's role. Yeah, that's right. So, and you, you can think about, about who the government might choose to appoint to these positions and then it's, it's, it's up to them. It's their particular taste, whether you've crossed the line or not. And uh, the consequences are severe. Like even if it's not a uh, $50,000 fine that you get, or uh, even if you don't end up having to pay $20,000 to your accuser, just the fact of, of having to face one of these complaints could potentially destroy your career and it's going to cause you a lot of stress. And just before we move on from this whole idea of um, the subjectivity of, of hate speech, I just wanted to mention, I saw this video recently from FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in and expression used to be education. And they were talking about um, hate speech in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so uh, that is the international human rights document that was created after the Second World War, after the horrors of you know the Nazi uh, genocide. And there was a big debate then about whether to include hate speech. And Eleanor Roosevelt for the United States she was very opposed to including hate speech because she saw that it would be abused by governments to, you know, shut down speech that they don't like, shut down the speech of their opposition. And she said, quote, any criticism of public or religious authorities might all too easily be described as incitement to hatred. You know, in other words, hate speech is often just sort of a cloak for sort of blasphemy laws and it's it's religious leaders and also authoritarian politicians who are often most in favor of hate speech because they can use it to shut down their critics. And uh, Roosevelt won that time around, but the countries that were in favor were Stalin's Soviet Union. So Stalin wanted hate speech provisions. South Africa, which had all kinds of laws to protect its apartheid system uh, and you know, banned racial hatred uh, because they didn't want people to criticize the the white minority that was ruling over the whole country and Saudi Arabia, which is very concerned about blasphemy. So uh, you had the US and uh, some some uh, Anglo countries opposed to hate speech. And it was Stalin's Russia, apartheid South mm -hmm. Africa and Saudi Arabia that were in favor. So that should tell you all you need to know about that. Okay, enough about that part because there's so much more of the bill to talk about. So the another part that is really scary to us is that the bill would increase the maximum sentence for advocating genocide from five years in prison to life in prison. And advocating genocide is bad. You should not do it. It's, uh, yes. it's a very bad thing to do, but life in prison for words and Andrew Coyne wrote a column on this bill and he's in favor of some parts of it, but 
He thought this was especially crazy. He said, quote, at a time when the air is thick with accusations that one side or the other of a current conflict is promoting genocide, this seems almost reckless. Is it not obvious how this could be abused? Yeah, so I want to know the obvious case is, is, is saying is calling for from the river to the sea, which has widely been interpreted as ethnically cleansing the holy land of Jews. Um, is that advocating genocide? Because it's certainly been interpreted as such. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scary stuff. Um, yeah. So what else is it? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like that, but I don't want those people to go to prison. But while we're talking about uh, offenses that now have a potential term of life imprisonment, maybe we should talk about the new, uh, the brand new criminal code offense. Um, so a new freestanding offense has been added to the criminal code. Uh, I'm just trying to look for the section. Yeah. So section 320, it's any offense motivated by hatred um, could now be liable for a term of life imprisonment. Um, so kind of what this does is normally um, if a prosecutor can prove that an offense like an aggravated assault or a sexual assault or damage to property is motivated by hatred, um, the sentencing judge can consider that as an ag ag aggravating factor and ratchet up the sentence. Um, now, at the press conference, Ju Minister Varani said that now this is a standalone offense that will focus police and prosecutors on charging hate crimes at the front end rather than having it at the back end. Um, to me, this suggests two things. First, as we mentioned before, it's a lot of virtue signaling politics. Um, we want to show that we're being super vigilant. Uh, we're, we're against bad people, um, but it also is giving a pretty explicit signal to uh, cops and crowns that we want you to track down and charge more of these crimes. Um, and then just again, uh, you know, Andrew Coyne also in his column talked about this is a freestanding offense that could apply to any offense that it that is an act of parliament. Um, so you could think about a fairly benign offense, like, I don't know, theft under $100. You know, everybody shoplifts from the drugstore now. Or sorry, we're not in San Francisco. But something benign like that, that if it was proven that, you know, you were shoplifting from a particular ethnic group's uh, convenience store and your offense was motivated by hatred, maybe this is a little bit, um, a little bit impractical, but it's possible on the text um, that you could be liable of a crime with a term, maximum term of life imprisonment. Like, it's just the absurdities. And I don't think any of this has been communicated well how the government is actually intending um, these uh, these offenses to be used. Yeah, so another, another one, speaking of um, not knowing how the government, not knowing how this will be used, uh, but reading it, uh, it, you know, just reading it suggests that it could be used for some really terrible things is this whole section of prior restraints on people who believe on reasonable grounds, uh, sorry, prior restraints on people who judges believe on reasonable grounds could commit speech crimes in the future. And so this is called the fear of hate propaganda offense or hate crime. And Basically, uh, we're trying to envision how this would work. So maybe you want to have like a rally and they're probably picturing something like a neo-Nazi rally and people say, oh, this is being advertised. And then uh, I don't want this rally to happen. And a judge will you can go to a judge and the judge will say, um, you know, Mr. Taylor, like 
if you hold this rally, um, we're going to put you in jail. And if you, but if you sign this recognizance to keep the peace, um, and you don't hold the rally over the next 12 months, then, then you won't go to jail. It comes with some severe potential conditions too. So, um, maybe that maybe you're not in jail for this potential future speech crime, but, uh, you can be forced to give up a bodily sample. You'd be forced to refrain from drugs and alcohol, give up your firearms, even wear an ankle. Uh, bracelet. And a friend of mine pointed out that there's a section uh, here that also says, if the provincial court judge adds a condition described in sub subsection seven, the judge shall specify how the things referred to in that subsection that are in the defendant's possession shall be surrendered, disposed of, detained, stored, or dealt with, and how the authorizations, licenses, and registration certificates that are dealt with by the defendant shall be surrendered. So, so that means that you know they can uh, take your take your firearms away if you're if you're forced into one of these recognizances. And I think the case they're picturing is probably something like a neo-Nazi rally. But what if it's like a parental rights rally, right? Like I think we could easily see someone that's opposed to what uh, many people call gender ideology in schools if they are a little bit too cutting in their criticism of of school policies might um, be forced into a recognizance and basically have their life ruined as a result. So why don't we why don't we uh, take a break and then when we come back, we'll talk about uh, how this bill proposes to treat platforms themselves. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so uh, the last sort of big chunk of how this bill operates that we wanted to talk about is what is called jawboning. Um, so it's ways that the government can exert control and to some extent delegate to social media platforms like X and Facebook um, and pressure them to uh, impose their own policies, but within the strictures of the government's oversight and regulation. So here, um, the bill is going to require social media co companies to adhere to a quote unquote duty to act responsibly, which includes minimizing the risk that users of the service will be exposed to harmful content. And this will be, of course, overseen by the Digital Safety Commissioner. And there are massive fines that are uh, that are threatened if the companies are found to not properly mitigate the risk. So the fines are up to $10 million or 6% of global revenues, of course, whichever is bigger because digital safety commissioners got to get paid. Um, so there are seven categories of content that are specified in the bill as quote unquote harmful. Uh, first is sexually victimizing children, bullying, inducing a child to harm themselves, extremism or terrorism, inciting violence, fomenting hatred, um, and intimate content posted without consent, aka deep, uh, aka revenge porn, including deep fakes. Uh, shout out to the Taylor Swift AI deep fake, which I did not see, but I understand I was not allowed to search for it on, on X a few weeks ago. And content that foments hatred is defined as that which, again, expresses detestation or vilification of an individual on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination, uh, and that given the context in which it's communicated, 
is likely to foment detestation or vilification. Um, and the bill also specifies um, that uh, this threshold is not met solely because the speech expresses disdain or dislike or discredits or humiliates or offends. Um, and so one improvement, we, we, uh, we're not, we, we say nice things as well as mean things, is that the previous iteration of this bill in 2021 proposed across the board 24-hour takedown requirements. Um, so if platforms didn't effectively take down hate speech or harmful content within 24 hours, they would be liable for these hefty fines. The 24-hour takedown requirement has been uh, tailored down to just the revenge porn um, and child sexual exploitation material. So I think that's good. I think we should take a zero-tolerance approach to that type of content. And it's also categorically different than quote unquote hate speech, right? Like they're out like something either is depicting explo sexual exploitation of a child or it's not, as far as I can tell. It's certainly much more black and white than if, you know, if so-and-so's comment about TERFs amounts to hate speech. Um, so I think it's good that they've tailored that in that way. Nonetheless, with this new requirement to flag har uh, harmful content, um, and mitigate the risk to the users, I think it's very likely to say that the platforms will err on the side of content, block large amounts of speech that's close to the legal line. Uh, and this will all be enforced by a digital safety commissioner, which again will be run by another government bureaucrat, uh, Michael Geist, who's considered probably the leading expert in this country on this issue, um, has commented that the digital safety commissioner is being granted a, a swath of powers that is remarkable, rulings on making content inac inaccessible, investigation powers, hearings that can be secret, establishing regulations and codes of conduct, and the power to levy penalties. Uh, there's an awful lot there and questions about commission oversight and accountability will be essential. Uh, there is also a signal that the, these companies, as they carry out these policies, don't necessarily have to comply with the charter, um, which specifies that you have freedom of expression and you are presumed to have free expression. Any infringements on that rights need to be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Instead, the language we see is that uh, the operator, subsection one does not require the operator to implement measures that unreasonably or disproportionately limit users' expression, which seems like a very low bar, almost like a reverse onus, I would say. Um, anything else to say about the platforms, Josh? Yeah, so I, I want to get into this idea of the job owning. So, you know, that's basically the idea where, um, you know, Justin Trudeau or uh, Joe Biden or the Digital Safety Commissioner, who will be appointed by Justin Trudeau and his cabinet, um, they know that they can't stop something uh, because it would violate the Constitution. So they can't prevent some sort of speech because it's going to violate the free speech protections. But they really also just want that speech to stop. So they sort of shake their big uh, stick and um, talk really loud about uh, getting rid of that that speech. And this bill does encourage that sort of job owning by the digital safety commissioner because, for example, it's going to require annual reporting on speech that is uh, not 
considered harmful content according to the bill, so not rising to the level of hate speech, but speech that, quote, the operator had reasonable grounds to believe posed a risk of significant psychological or physical harm. So they're basically encouraging X or YouTube or Instagram or whatever to um, have a process to complain about speech that is that is not hate speech, but it, that is still harmful. And, you know, tell us whether you took that down or not. We want to know how many posts this year that were 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 taken down because there was a risk of psychological harm. So that's legal speech that they're sort of encouraging to also be taken down. And I think that makes this even more overbroad. And another thing, just the last thing I'll point out is the last iteration of this bill had 24 hour takedown requirements for harmful content, including hate speech. And now that just applies to the stuff that is obviously uh, this the the stuff that should be coming down, which is images of like child exploitation. And that 24 hour takedown requirement is gone. But that doesn't mean that social media companies aren't going to take that down because uh, the bill still requires a process for, you know, flagging uh, potentially harmful content. And it'll then be up to the social media company to decide whether to take it down and they have to report on that at the end of the year. So they're not being required to, but they might still do something like a 24 hour uh, takedown policy. So um, it could end up being almost as bad as it was before. So lots lots, uh, lots going on in that bill. I know we've uh, talked at length. Um, are you ready to move on to our bad legal takes, Joanna? Let's close it out. All right. So my bad legal take is from Amber Mack, and she is a podcaster, business journalist, and keynote speaker for Hire. And she has a huge following on X, and it's uh, probably because she has such strong opinions. And in response to a statement from the conservatives that says basically that, you know, the current criminal laws on sexually victimizing children should be enforced and that there should be you know, some new laws um, around things like deep fakes, but quote, we do not believe that the government should be banning opinions that contradict the prime minister's common sense conservatives will protect our kids and punish criminals instead of creating more bureaucracy and censoring opinions. Now, Joanna, you pointed this out in your column in the hub and Christine also sort of anticipated this, that the liberals would put measures uh, to require takedown of child exploitation images and other really nasty content that you know nobody wants to see online like terrorist content in this bill uh, so that anyone who opposed the more serious speech restrictions would could be accused of you know supporting child exploitation and that's obviously what Amber Mack does in this tweet and it's either stunningly naive and she's just taken the bait or maybe it's some sort of strategic take I don't know if she uh, is being maybe paid by the Liberal Party or wants to run for them in the future. It's definitely got that kind of vibe. So Amber Mack tweeted, so Canadian parents, just remember this, Pierre Polyev doesn't want to regulate social media companies to stop the spread of child pornography or self-harm algorithms or pedophile networks, but instead prefers to let those social media companies do what they want in the interest of dot, 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 free speech. He's more concerned if your child wants to be called Samantha versus Sam than actually protecting them from predators on the internet. These social media companies are raking in profits while repeatedly getting caught exploiting our kids. These social media companies can afford to put guardrails in place. Our police departments do not have the bandwidth to tackle this out of control digital <laughs> crisis. 
And then she says, a reminder, 79% of sextortion incidents occurred on Instagram. She says, Instagram's recommendation algorithms are promoting pedophile networks. I don't know about that. And uh, she says, among teens that report suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users traced their desire to kill themselves to Instagram. Like, this is just so over the top. So, you know, Polyev has committed in his statement to expanding criminal bans on communication without consent. And he also pointed out that sexually victimizing kids online is already illegal. You know, the platforms are already take, they don't want this content on there. Like no platform does. They're already taking tons of steps to eliminate that. If you're a, a social media company and you're trying to sell ads, the last thing you want is any of this type of content that is about victimizing kids. And so, you know, even giving giving her the benefit of the doubt, maybe she was just watching the media coverage and she really did just buy uh, buy into the, the line that the government was trying to sell. Um, I don't know how much media coverage you watched of this, Joanna, but I watched the, the National on CBC on Sunday and they had a, you know, leaked story from the government about how this would all be about protecting kids. And they interviewed the mother of Amanda Todd, who was a girl who tragically was bullied online and, and and died by suicide and you know she was talking about how great this bill was would be and then on monday what happened was the bill uh the press conference announcing this bill didn't happen until 5 15 p.m and uh the text was not available that until then either like they gave journalists um a technical briefing and told them oh this is what's going to be in the bill but they couldn't actually read it until Basically, you're almost at the supper hour news. And if you're something like the National, you've already had to line up all your people to speak on this bill in order to get your story done by 9 p.m. And so the story that aired on the National really was about how this bill is just all about the child exploitation stuff. And they didn't get into the the harms at all. I think there was like uh, one sentence at the very end of the story that was that was critical and it was said something like you know pierre polyev said last week that he's opposed to censorship so um giving her the benefit of the doubt maybe she just bought a little bit too much into the spin um but either way it is a very bad legal take to suggest that just because you don't support a censorship regime that's built into this bill that you're somehow siding with the the child predators joanna let's hear your bad legal take Okay, this is sort of a misapprehension from the other side. This is from Kian Bext, and he says, he tweets, I have been reading about Justin Trudeau's online harm bill, harms bill all day. People are not grasping the sheer magnitude and malice of his plan. This law will be Trudeau's final blow when it comes to regulating freedom in Canada. Our history will be remembered as before and after the implementation of this draconian act. He intends to suffocate Canadians who oppose his rule. Hong Kong recently passed laws banning speech disallowed by the government and a generation of young adults fled. I'm in shock and I'm forced to consider moving the counter signal and my family out of the country. Okay, Kian, first of all, as you pointed out, Josh, this is like the version of Americans who always say they're gonna flee the country if Trump is reelected and then pretty much None of them do it. So I don't know if you're if you really are going to leave the country because of the online harms bill. Um, but I think uh, I think Justin Trudeau is somebody who's more incompetent than deliberately uh, malicious and evil. I don't think there's a 
sheer magnitude and malice of his plan. There is a clarification that uh, content does not reach the threshold of hate speech just because it expresses disdain or dislike. Of course, that doesn't solve the problems of chill that we talked about. It doesn't solve the problems of vagueness, um, but it does go somewhat to the government's intent. I don't actually think this bill is aimed at silencing political dissent. I think it puts Canada in line with other legislative regimes that we've seen in Europe and Australia, although we'd have critiques of them. Um, and it kind of has walked back some of the worst proposals, like the across the board 24 hour takedown requirements. But I think in general, Kian, my overall take is that the notion that the government has anything like a systematic plan for uh, for imposing uh, imposing some type of authoritarian regime um, is fanciful. So uh, thank you, but try again later. Bad legal take. All right. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us now or we will report you to the Digital Safety Commissioner. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague, Russ. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.